Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin. Here we are. We find ourselves here again. Again. It's the beginning of the week. It's Groundhog Day. We're doing it again. Except so much has changed for you and I this week. So much has changed. We actually saw real people. We saw real people. You are on the other coast, the left coast. The left coast, which some people say is the best coast. Some do. But, you know, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. The two of us that are here with you today would disagree. Uh, And you, so you are in the heart of your sabbatical, which is lovely. You've been sending me photos and you've been posting about wine and relaxation and spaciousness and all of the things. Um, Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how things are going for you in California? Well, we are enjoying the bounty of the earth. And let me tell you, it is good to be in California. Um, got to see a really good friend yesterday who was a um, was a student at Claremont um, after our good friend trip and leads a community in Santa Barbara. And he drove halfway to meet us. And so we met in Paso Robles and had a really amazing lunch um, at this like farm to table organic place. They had the fruits and vegetables out on the patio. It was really amazing. Was it bountiful? It was bountiful. And I had one of the best Cubano sandwiches that I've had there. Okay. Let me tell you. Okay. This had not only smoked pork, but it had pork belly on it. It was good. It was good. And then we went over and had some wine at, the Justin Winery, which is uh, really good wine, apparently. Um, nice. I mean, it all sort of tastes the same to me, but <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. It's not true. <laughs> I mean, we can at least know that we know the difference between a Boda box and a and a and a decent bottle of wine. Yeah, and I know the difference between a Chardonnay and a like a Pinot Gris. Okay. But when you start doing the, I mean, I love reds. I love yes. big, bold, leathery reds. Yes, you do. And it's and it's hard sometimes for me to tell the difference between the okay. reds. Okay. Well, I am so glad that you have had such a wonderful time there. That things are that that this time is really what you intended it to be. Um, I got to live my very best life this past weekend. I went to my first music festival in 15 months, which as you know, and as our listeners know, is really like the heart of my being, Mm -hmm. being able to kind of see live music and listen to bands and be, you know, just in the presence of really um, 
heartfelt and and beautiful music is is what really gives me life. It fills my battery up, and I feel like I could. I feel like I could just change the world. I'm so eight hours to do it. I drove eight hours to do it. And I might have drank the bar out of makers, but it's fine. It's fine. It's all fine. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, where we're staying, it, it, it gets anywhere between like 88 and 97 um, but where we're staying has got a really great patio and I could spend almost all day outside and never get hot. And so I am not drinking a lot of makers. I am, however, drinking a lot of water because I'm noticing that even though I'm in the shade, I have to stay hydrated. And so yeah. because one of my intentions is spaciousness and taking care of myself, I've got my water bottle with me on hand at all times. So I'm wondering, did you drink water while you were at your music festival? I did not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, that's the first problem. See, you could have texted me and I could have told you what I was doing. I could have. No, you know, it was, I, so I did drink some water uh, when my body, but not enough. What I, not enough. When my body reminded me when I woke up in the morning, how much I needed to hydrate. I drank mm. a lot of water. See, that's uh, the first but, mistake. That's I the know. first mistake. I know. I know. Water first. Thank you, daddy. I appreciate, I, I am so grateful for your wise and, and gifted. Yeah. Um, always here for you. Imp- Just I let know. me know. I know you're the best. Yeah. Well, I am, I am glad that both of us are arriving at this episode with kind of a spring in our step and yes. um, understanding and embracing the the beauty that is uh, vacation or at least um, kind of being outside of environments that we're used to being in. Um, and I'm, I'm back at my desk. You have a makeshift desk uh, with you your podcast. I hope it all doesn't fall apart is what I'm hoping for. Yeah. Well, you know, we're going to ride it till the wheels come off. That's the yeah. way we say it. So, yeah. um, so we have, a really amazing guest with us this week. We very are amazing. very the most amazing. amazing. The, it's, it, I mean, she's pretty badass, pretty amazing. And so you have a, uh, what I would term significant relationship with our guest. I am just now coming to discover her in the flesh, although I have uh, done a lot of discovering of her through her writings. Um, but we yeah, are. I, yeah, I would say she's my significant other in academic terms. That's the. I mean, that's that's a big statement yeah. based on your academic prowess. Yes. Yeah. Well, we are welcoming um, Nikki Young to the Activist Theology Podcast. Um, Dr. Young is a, an associate professor at Bucknell University. Um, she has uh, a, a book under her belt, has manuscripts that she's working on, is a really beautiful um, writer in the realm of um, Black queer community and family. And we thought that this would be a really wonderful conversation for us to have as we have just passed the Mother's Day holiday and are engaging, as some of us engaged in, you know, Mother's Day and, 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 and Hallmark holidays around those kinds of days that may not make us feel warm and fuzzies about family in general. 
And so mm. we are really thrilled to welcome Dr. Nikki Young to the Activist Theology Podcast. Nikki, welcome. Thank you so much to both of you for welcoming me to your space, especially given all of the shenanigans that have taken place in the last few moments. I mean, I think I have a special seat today to be able to witness <laughs> your relationship, and I'm loving every moment of it. So honestly, we're seeing all kinds of wonderful things, and um, I really appreciate the generous introduction. I don't know that anyone has called me amazing as many times, and so now I'm trying to think of amazing things to say. Well, you are amazing. And Robin is going to, Robin, do you want to, do you want to spill some tea and talk a little bit about Nikki or you want to have Nikki tell our listeners a little bit about herself first? Well, let me just first start and say that, that I met Dr. Nikki Young before they were the, 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 you know, sort of uh, most amazing professor at Bucknell University uh, when Nikki and I were scholars in training. And, and we met actually in Nashville, Tennessee. And if I told, if I told the story that, that happened just prior to us walking back to Hogwarts, it might get me into a little bit of trouble. So I'm, I'm not going to tell that story, but just know folks, there is a story that solidified our connection and our eyes met and we were like, oh, shit, that's what we're dealing with. That was kind of the the what happened after the incident. I'm not going to tell that story. The story I'm going to tell you is right after that event that I'm not going to tell you about. We were walking back from the div school to Hogwarts, which is Scarab Bennett. And Nikki, in Nikki's grand wisdom and humor, Nikki's also a Leo, so I should just say that to it. I'm a Leo. So there, there's some camaraderie there with our sun signs. And Nikki made a statement, and I had the largest belly laugh that I had in a long time. And I knew that if someone could create conditions, which I think is character, if Nikki has the kind of character, you know where I'm going with this, Nikki, I'm going down this line of virtue ethics. If Nikki has the kind of character to produce in me a belly laugh, which also stems from my character, then what is the potential for that interpersonal relating? And, you know, 10 years later, here we are doing our amazing scholarship in the public square, both of us and in institutions trying to make the world a better place. Nikki is one of the people you just want to set down and make a whole spread and have dinner with every night because that's just the kind of person she is. Good food, good conversation, make you have a belly laugh, um, and she'll always encourage you to take a walk. I love it. You know what, Robin? I'm glad you didn't tell that story for lots of reasons. One, because I want you to maintain relationships with people all across the South. And two, because I think it was simultaneously um, a public experience and a very intimate one. So one of the things that I love about you is that you are able to do the work of intimacy and sacred creation in public. And that that experience that we had right before the belly laughter was one of those moments where I was like, Oh, okay. Um, Robin is willing to see me and I can see them. Mm -hmm. So the symbol, the symbolic sort of second of us locking eyes in meant more, I think than we thought. Now 
cut to several moments later, as you describe, <laughs> when we are barely able to make it down the street because it turns out you can't laugh and breathe at the same time. Right, exactly. I think that, you know, passersby were trying to figure out whether or not we were going to implode right. or explode. And so, I mean, I thought that that was a, an important thing. Incidentally, it wasn't too far after that that I walked in on my roommate unclothed while they were in the bathroom. So it was like, it was a night of shenanigans. You know what I mean? Right. Like it was the right. beginning of a lot. Right. Well, and also my, my sweet mate yeah. was also having a moment to themselves <laughs> and the door was open. So yeah, we, yeah. we had a lot to talk about. We did. We did. But I was, I'm, I'm glad for uh, that summer. It was life changing for so many reasons. And mm-hmm. I'm glad yes. it brought us together. But here we are. Here we are. I, so I am rarely left, um, speechless but um i uh, nikki could you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and um let our let our folks know kind of how you come at this work and and how you would describe yourself in in this setting and and in these days yeah no thank you for inviting me to do that um robin's wiles are so distracting that i forget to acknowledge myself in their presence um so i am uh a black queer ethicist, and I understand my perspective to be about um, making sense of the world through the assumptions that um, black queerness allows me to have agency and subjectivity, and which then gives me moral agency. And I'm really proud of being a southerner. I'm, you know, I'm proud of the experiences of uh, chosen and and um, bio family that have birthed me into the world. And I'm certainly um, proud of and excited about relationships that I've learned to cultivate through um, the histories of, of blackness and queerness and the land and, and Southern intonations and lilts of the coasts of Carolina, right? So, um, but I'm also uh, a person who is trying to make some changes institutionally and those things don't always um, work together. They don't always seem to work together, but I'm, I'm glad that I have an opportunity to do so. Um, I work up here in central Pennsylvania, even though my heart beats stronger in the South. I love that. I am, I too am a fellow Southerner. And although I was born and raised in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I, my home here in Chattanooga, Tennessee brings me both the, the gift of, um, Southern hospitality in, in its good and charming ways. And it creates those problematic tendencies for, um, you know, wondering, uh, what the hell the world's coming to when, when you see certain things going on. So I, I echo your, I echo those Southern roots with my own. And I, um, I see you rooted deep as I am as well. So we wanted to take a few minutes today to talk about this um, understanding of family and this understanding um, of a broader concept of family than some of us may kind of have in our in our uh, vocabulary. Um, we many of us might say that we have um, you know blood relatives and then we have kind of family of choice. Um, I wonder how you would kind of identify both as 
important and necessary in our work as humans and in our work as community builders? Um, and, and then maybe where you might find the dissonance between the two. First of all, I think that's a great question. And one of the inclinations that I uh, often have, and I'm still trying to train myself against, is to distinguish somehow between uh, what I call biokin and chosen fam, right? And there are people to whom I am biologically related that are more than the gift of choice even, right? For whom I'm eternally grateful to be related, whether it was by blood or just by being, right? So there, there are those folks. And there are people that I have chosen to be so fundamentally um, connected to that th- their existence or movement away from my life would be, would be a huge deficit. So part of what I've been trying to do over time is make a, is to draw less of a line between those than I usually do in my speech or in my writing. Um, but so one of the ways, and Robin, I, I cannot wait to hear you talk about this, but one of the ways I uh, have thought about family recently is as an anchor for um, where one is from. So I don't just mean geography, but I mean where cos- cosmologically we're from, how we trace our sense of self. So when I was writing um, the book, you know, I was talking about the family as this sort of site uh, formation, maybe moral formation, political, social formation, and potentially as a site of transformation, right? But now I'm thinking of it uh, in terms of like, where I find a kind of home or isness that's not located uh, geographically, but is instead about connections to other connections to the world, to the earth, to the ground, to the dirt. And those things to me are familial. The friends are what have me key key in, right? What I, what I love, but the, but the family connection is something much uh, deeper than that. So but, but I, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Well, I, I tend to think about, um, you know, in Spanish there, when you, when you at, when you want to know, um, when you want to know, uh, who a person is or where they live, there are two different, there are two different questions. And the question that people ask is where are you from? And that locates a person in in the sort of sphere of of knowing, right? Where you live doesn't always indicate what kind of person you are. And so in my quest to sort of network myself together with people is to figure out who are my people? What, where do they come from? And and I and I've the, the terrain of fromness, it for me is is kind of that tech home space, mm-hmm. the space of becoming. And so for me, it's a it's a question of who are my people? What is their fromness? Are they from um, a place? of hospitality, a place of generativity, a genetic place, a place that emerges in, you know, that is good or beneficial. Um, and, and that, and that's how I have tended to network myself with people. Um, because as, 
it won't be a surprise to anyone here, but you know, family systems, there, there is a lot of uh, fragmentation and dysfunction in, in my bio family. And so I have had to sort of chart the fromness with people. Yeah, I mean, incidentally, conversationally, we get stuck with that, right? So um, something that I've done in social spaces, also educational spaces, is shift away um, from asking in language, where are you from, to where do you call home? Because that sort of the locale there is, again, less geographic for me than it is cultural. You know, it's content-based. What is that from which you uh, come and how did you get here is, is right. there too. And this also helps obviously when people are trying to place folks who they read as quote unquote foreign scare quotes right. in the air, as I say it. Right. So shifting uh, to there and where do you call home to me also situates family and in, in terms of orientation, which is sort of how I talk about it um, as opposed to just, just relations. I, appreciate the nuance that you both kind of bring to this this question because there is a, a both and it's not an either or it's always a both and and I think as we are navigating um, as you've as you've said Nikki kind of this uh, what do we call these people in our lives are our, our biokin and those that we wouldn't let go if we could, um, whose blood we share, whose genetics we share. Um, it still, it still echoes in, um, problematic terms at times. And so I am curious how both of you might see the, um, the evolution or the, the blossoming of potential potentiality around, uh, situating ourselves in when we think of family more in the context of family as um, queer in um, in in its in its uh, verb form than we would a family as a as a, a bio um, explanation that we might give it. Yeah, Robin, I would love to hear you talk about this too, because you and I, do you remember when we were first um, connecting and writing together, we were we were on a road show basically, and we were talking about being and becoming together and the potential of being connected intersectionally, right? We were, if yeah. someone said, please use all the jargon possible. Right. We did say, that. <laughs> yeah, like that's exactly what we did. And, but one of the things that we talked about though, was um, the sort of quality of queering relationships, right? So in any public space that we've had, you say, you know, Nikki and I are academic partners. We name each other as family and we cultivate in the space that we enter the the features of our relationship as a right. part of our conversation. So I just I'd love to hear you talk about that first. Well, I I'm I'm remembering a lot of events that we did over the past ten years. Um, some of them have stories that would put people in stitches. Remember that one time we were in the infirmary. And, and, I was just about to tell that story. <laughs> 
and how I didn't have a coach. And anyway, that, that's a different story. But, is it? <laughs> is it? But there in that space, when we when we spoke at Creating Change, um, we did a lot of work around foregrounding power and privilege as it also relates to family. And so I, I'm remembering in those moments of talking about um, how my skin color gives that, you know, there, there's a site of privilege in my skin color relative to yours. And how do we negotiate that when we're talking about family? Because, necessarily we have to do a power analysis in that also sort of gender presentation right or gender expression uh me being mask of center uh more so now than i was 10 years ago and you being femme of center and how do those how do those power structures play out in the expression in the lived expression of kinship um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about those, those things, um, partially because they're always alive mm-hmm. and they, and, 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 and I feel like those are the things that often, uh, get misplaced in the analysis when we were talking about family or kinship, uh, these power nodes, as I would call them mm-hmm. that, that creep up in ways that, uh, I mean, I always have to be mindful that I, I mean, and, and you tell me this often, um, you know, I'm moving the world uh, where I'm read in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, th- and that then shows up in my interpersonal relating if I'm being read in that way. And so I always have to be very mindful and intentional about, okay, what is my orientation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that the story, um, that then fits here. So Robin and I, um, we we went to creating change in Minneapolis in the year. I don't know. Maybe the year of our Lord, 2012. I think so. Yes. 2012. So we're in Minneapolis and it's freezing cold outside. And, you know, even it was like negative 20. Yeah. And so I, I'm going to skip the story where our laziness had us actually walk outside in negative 20 degrees because we weren't willing to walk the miles of the skywalk. So I'm embarrassed for us now in 2021 behind that foolishness. So let's just take a collective sigh of shame. But the story that I'm actually going to tell is, do you remember that we, and this is before COVID when people could just get a cold and, and, and not, I mean, infect and potentially really harm the world. Right. Um, when we, we set up the infirmary, exactly. We each caught colds. We they were really bad, and we also watched a whole bunch of uh, criminal minds. Criminal minds, yeah. So, and we're like trying to go to these sessions. So here's this one session that we're like, we've got to go to. This is for um, BIPOC folks. I, I think at that point we were just saying this is for people of color, and it's yeah. a workshop. We're like, we're going to this. We we're gonna gird our loins and go. So we go, we're all like medicined, we've got our tissues. I mean, really looking like the flyest, infirmed, sick and shut-in community that yeah, ever graced that us. a presence. So there we are, we're going into the people's place, sneezing and coughing all into their, into their energy. And like, they're serving everyone lunch, it's a room full of beautiful POCs, uh, mostly queer folks, right? Some straight people, mostly but queer mostly folks. Queer yeah. 
<laughs> and then one sister, you know, lunch is sort of over. And she's like, okay, well, um, I just want to make an announcement. You know, everyone is welcome here for lunch. But as we actually get started with the workshop, this is going to be a space only for people of color. Right. So, we, you know, we continue to eat our lunch and we're going on and they come back through and, and she makes another announcement. You know, I just want to thank everyone for being here. This is such a wonderful community. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's time to remember that this is a POC space and it's important for us to share, um, share that space with one another. So she goes back one more time, like maybe two minutes later and makes the same announcement. And Robin, you turned to me and was like, Bitch, is she talking to me? <laughs> right, right. And I died laughing because it was, I mean, the absurdity of it all was too much. We were disturbing anybody's space with our sneezing and coughing. I was embarrassed to be in that room. Yeah. However, what we realized in that moment was that the way that you are read in your body, which is, which is um, white presenting, um, was what was showing up in that moment. And they had not heard the stories of erasure and you had started to process, but weren't fully processing the language around the, you know, privileged um, lack of melanin, right? The privilege right. of the lack of melanin in that way. And so I think it was such a moment for us to be able to have you decide whether or not you were going to stay. And you right. were one of the first people who spoke and you said, I am the child of a brown mother, right? And and then you started um, saying, you know, what it means to be erased, but also to notice yourself in that space. So I just think that that was a moment for me that solidified like what it meant for us to be present together in that space and for even me to dismiss the broader narrative, right. and, you know, to forget for a moment, which is not about like, quote unquote, I don't see color, I'm not one of those people, but to forget in the absurdity of our relationship, yeah. the fullness of your presence in space. Yeah. And, and I, I remember being mortified. I mean, I, not only was I sick, but now I'm mortified that I am in a room where I'm not supposed to be. And yet I have these experiences that allow me to be in that room even though I may not look it, right? And what does that say about the ways that power and privilege function for each of us uh, in, a, in a sort of self-denial way or the, the ways in which people of color internalize oppression and racism uh, and how we see people? Uh, and I think... I think that's why, I mean, I'll never forget, she doesn't listen to this podcast, so I feel like I can say this, but I'll never forget, um, we had a conversation years ago, and I also have to say that hearing you tell that story, I'm emotional, I, I feel, I've not revisited those memories in a while, and so, mm. um, and, and to be in the space of, you know, memory is what binds us together, it's the connective tissue of relationship, and um, so I'm just emotional and I feel, I feel in my body um, just the warm illumination of your presence. And that's beautiful to me. Um, but one of the things I wanted to say is that years ago when, when I was still doing my PhD, um, you said two things to me in two different occasions. One is we were talking about 
how my my former relationship with Stephanie, where there was an orientation to whiteness, because because sort of your experience of Stephanie is that her orientation is to this thing called whiteness, um, and so therefore um, queerness as an orientation is is was out of her grasp. That was one thing you said to me. Yeah, and and for me. My orientation is to queer everything and to be oriented in this destabilizing way that creates generative conditions for flourishing, right? Yeah. The other thing you said to me, I was putting away a book uh, in, my, in my bookshelf, and you said, imagination is the best thing we have on our side. And those two things that you said to me, two different occasions um, – I think instilled in me, um, you were in band, you know, the metronome, come on. Those two, those two statements to me became like a metronome for me to, to use as part of my analytic method. What is my orientation? Yeah. And where is my practice of imagination? And it, the story that you told about us being in Minnesota f- feels to me a little bit like the precursor to those two statements that you made to me because because our relationship allowed me to lean into that very uncomfortable space because it was very clear that the sister was talking to me. <laughs> I was the only light-skinned person there. Well, you was the brightest one. I mean, there's plenty well, of light-skinned people, but you was, you know, glowing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think part of part of what I remember too in that moment is I think you also knew that I was with you, like you know, you weren't there alone. You don't right. have to be in that right. space alone. And on the other hand, if you were if you decided to bounce for whatever reason, like that, that would have been cool too. So, yeah, I mean, those are. Those are important connections, I, but I appreciate those those two frames. Um, I appreciate the memory of that. So um, a little behind the scenes for some of our listeners, I, I kind of make notes and like write words down as I'm listening to stories being told. And, um, and then I kind of use those words to help formulate kind of where my thought process might go or where I might lead our guests or lead Robin in this work. And about five minutes before um, Robin's last statement, I wrote down the words uh, imagination and generosity. Mm. Before before they were even kind of spoken into the space, that that's what's on my sticky note right here at my at my waist. And I think I was drawn to this um, this belief around imagination because I was sitting here thinking about myself in spaces of um, chosen family and knowing that my, uh, the way that I was socialized as a well-intended white woman did not in my formative years and really quite frankly, the first probably 40 years of my life, um, condition me, train me, um, allocate space space for me to understand what community looked like 
um, outside of the the bonds of the bonds of whiteness that I had known for for all those years. Um, there is an arm's length distance um, that often comes with white community, um, and it's directly related to power, and it's mm-hmm. directly related to any kind of um, kind of threatening um, kind of the possibility of losing the threat of losing that power that we have in those spaces. And it is through imagination that I have been able to, I think, sink much deeper into this work with Robin um, because one Robin has shown me and, and taught me through action and, and voice and, and, spirit and and connectedness what it means to rest in that kind of relationship Mm -hmm. but two because i have been given this imaginative possibility around what can be and how we are to be different with one another if we really want to see the kind of change and the kind of revolution that that we say the world is in need of and so I am, I'm heartened by your stories, but I'm also, um, I appreciate this kind of capacity to uh, sit on the sidelines a bit and also kind of imagine what that kind of generosity of spirit and, and generosity of um, commitment to the deep um, ethics of En Conjunto really do mean. Yeah. Um, is there, does that, does that lead you anywhere, Nikki? Does that, I mean, are there any, um, any, is there anything that kind of springboards off of that? Actually, confession? <laughs> no, and I appreciate the reflection in its fullness. I really do because it, it reminds me of this other aspect of our relationship, Robin, that we probably don't talk about very often, but, you know, I've seen you through a lot of, um, relationships and here's the tea oh (laughs) lord okay come on get a big old pot and spill it nikki just spill it all over the keyboard there's just there's just a lot of there have been a lot of opportunities for you to be generous with your love and (laughs) and i have been there for all of them at least um in the post uh denver stage and um but one of the things actually that was really powerful was during this time when you felt oppressed relationally. So you, you weren't exactly sure how to articulate what a liberative relationship would look like, not only in a sort of intimate partner context, but you know, you were thinking about that in terms of family, you were thinking about in terms of right. the academy. So in a variety of ways, one of the things that I thought was really remarkable was even as you were in that in that space, you were imagining your way out of it. Mm-hmm. So you were putting into practice other kinds of points of connection. So our friendship, our familial relationship at the time was a, a different point of connection. The relationships that you formed with some of your other uh, friends who are family at that time in particular were the elements that sort of liberated you from connections yeah. that were really devastating. 
And I will say that there was this one time that Robin and I were, um, we were both attending the Society for Christian Ethics conference down in New Orleans. And I hadn't seen Robin for a while. So I was really looking forward to seeing them, you know, maybe having a meal and just connecting. And Robin had come there with a boo, honey. And when I tell you that Robin rolled up and was like, hey, how you doing? It's so good to see you. I think we caught a meal that was a, a, some might call it um an amuse bouche it was so small like it wasn't even a snack it was a bite you know what i mean like we had this brief connection and i was about to say okay yo i'll see you later right like i'll check you out at one of the receptions or i'll see you at a session robin looked at me and was like i'll see you next time because they were about to go enjoy the experience of embodiment for the next several days and what i loved about that because i obviously was going to spill that tea but what i loved about that actually was that i knew that in that you were choosing to have a liberated Mm. um embodied experience in the space of all these people doing ethics you are having that experience in the south you're having it in the context of exploring a variety of ways of being. So that was the beautiful part of it. The tea of it was that you were having all weekend. Right. You know, it, it is interesting to think about, I mean, I'm, I tell this a lot, like I'm, I'm deeply socialized as an academic, you know, I, 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 I want to do serious scholarship now, how that looks and, and how that expresses itself may be unintelligible to, to people who are tethered to an institution uh, with a lack of imagination. But I, th- I think I think that th- the sort of um, the invitation that I have felt from reading people like E. Patrick Johnson mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. is there is a pathway to a liberative relationality uh but it has to be queered. It has to be destabilized to get there. Well, we have to question what the path is. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, every time you say serious scholarship, I always want to return you to um, your use of the word material. I Mm -hmm. think you have always been invested in doing material scholarship. You're a material academic so that what you think and speak into the world actually has matter. Right. Mm-hmm. So not that it matters, but linguistically that it has matter. And this this is an, an important way that I think you are a public theologian and that why your amazing book, Activist Theology, um, is what it is, because you connect what you're thinking and what you're saying to the ways that we live and be together. Right. To the actual. Or I try to. Well, I mean, I think you do it. Look at this. This is, this is a podcast. We're not reading this conversation. Right. True. We're able to sense it. We're able to draw on, you know, some of the energy and emotions that we mm. that we share. I don't even know what this would look like if we were reading it in print. I imagine it would be like a whole bunch of words repeated. Right. Maybe. Dull and unimaginative. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I like I like that sort of uh, adjective um, or or. or um, or a different way to talk about, as most scholars do, I want to do serious scholarship. No, it's about lived theology. It's about material scholarship. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And you also have asked from 
probably from the moment I know you actually that story that we didn't tell was whose scholarship is serious or like whose framework. I mean, this is what, this is right. what we mean, right? Whose orientation matters. And I think that gets to, you know, and what you're saying, what you're posing for us in this conversation is, you know, whose orientation to family underwrites what we know as foundational to uh, the ways we create relationships. Right? right. And I think for me, um, I'm not going to be able to find liberation through a patriarchal orientation to family. Right. That's, that's not it. If we're in a familiar relationship and no one's asking questions about shared responsibility and accountability about, you know, um, challenging the frameworks of ownership or colonized bodies or um, thinking about resources in new and, and open ways, then I don't want that. And that doesn't mean to say that I don't put on a good apron and make a nice cake. It's right. to say that like, I don't do that because I'm told or because right. I haven't, that I'm following a script that I haven't taken the time to read. And so I wonder, Nikki, how you see the ancestral part of our roots weaving in and folding in with that um, that statement that you just made. Um, and I ask that because I think that um, regardless of of whether we're talking about me as a as a cis straight white woman um, or you as a black queer woman we also kind of bring with us, um, even if it's unknown, this historical memory, this, this ancestral lineage of what family looked like for those that um, laid the groundwork for our work here mm -hmm. um, at this time. And are, are, there, are there tentacles of that that um, we need to be mindful of? Are there ways that we either need to forego the, the embracing or the, um, the memory around ancestral family lineage um, and replace it? Or are there ways that we really need to harness it in order to truly understand kinship in new and, and bountiful ways? Uh, another amazing question. There are a couple of things I would say there. One is, you know, one of the features of relating that I get from my family's chosen and bio are, um, one of the features is hospitality. So part of what the reason that Robin and I connected when we did is because we each showed each other hospitality in a moment where we felt like strangers, where we felt like outsiders. I was outsiders in a conversation that was really oppressive. And Robin was an outsider to a conversation because they witnessed how ludicrous it was, <laughs> how ludicrous it was. So there is something about creating a space of hospitality that is deeply rooted in me. It's, it, it comes from the soil, um, where, where I come from. But the other feature that you're naming that helps me queer notions of family is this idea and the legacy that I come from Black people, from people connected to and derived from um, African soil and lands and places is a notion of family that is not simply connected to this time or this space, right? So the idea of I am family with those who came before me and the people not yet born, as well as the people on this earth. And so to have those relationships across time and space, I have to bend 
time and space. I have to reorient myself. And if those are relationships that are sacred enough for me to reorient myself to, so too are the ways that I connect with other people here and that I form sacred bonds with. So yeah, absolutely. The, the legacies and histories of new and other kinds of tethering um, are, are driving the way that I are queer kinship relations. Thanks for asking that. Can we, can we take that a step further and also talk about moral excellence? Yeah, because this is this is a thing of yours that is rich, a- and and you and I both like uh, virtue theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, we you know there are some pieces we don't go all the way, you know, but mm-hmm. there there's a lot of it that is really rich. And I remember you gave a lecture at Vanderbilt a couple years ago, and. And basically, it, it was this scholarship that you've been working on around moral excellence, and you had talked about how good is a contested term, mm-hmm. and and we often in 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 this world, uh, we often don't do that labor, that intellectual and emotional labor of detailing. How good is a contested term? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We see this show up in the public narrative around police while well, there are good cops and bad cops. Um, are good apples and bad apples, as the president said a couple weeks ago. But you really have this um, sense about um, more excellence and um, goodness that is also tied uh to a to a sense of like uh liberation freedom belonging yeah and because those are also categories that i work with um i'm wondering if you would share a little bit uh, about that for our listeners because i think that it would further connect the dots no i appreciate that i mean you know i think a path of moral excellence is a path of creativity. And in, in my understanding of our cosmological um, uh, drive and impetus, it's to be co-creators in, in our experience. And so what that requires is a subjectivity. It requires agency. It requires a notion of a possibility to generate what one believes is good. You know, in... Uh, the way that we understand and have have trained around virtue ethics, people might be working towards a good, a good that's established, often established in hierarchical terms, right? So something that distinguishes what is good from what is debased or what is properly ordered from what is chaotic, what is um, seamless rather than something that is broken apart, right? And, and I have reframed that to think about the good as what we co-constitute in our worlds that we find to be indicative of values that we have, indicative of the, the um, virtues that we want to cultivate. So something like freedom itself becomes uh, um, a mechanism 
towards what is good. It liberation is if liberation is a goal, then the process of liberating becomes the work towards you know the good. Right? That is good work. That is excellent. And so, um, in my mind, then we are not all working towards a particular end. We are working to the end of possibility. That right. moral excellence leads us to more and more possibility, more and more creativity, and more and more belief in one another's potential, right? Or potentiality, for that matter. And I think that um, any evisceration of the human experience or other sentient beings' experiences that don't allow them to flourish, that is, that doesn't allow them to experience joy and pleasure so that they can create what they understand to be the good that is a dehumanizing that is a violent a destructive um, process so and it and it and it thwarts or it aborts flourishing which yeah. is sort of the the end of possibility would be flourishing in yeah. in in robust ways uh yeah so so can i just ask how the book is going the next book yeah, you can. Now, can I answer? No, I'm just kidding. Because um, <laughs> well, I know that you're very busy doing administrative work at Bucknell that probably keeps you from the research and writing. Yeah, well, I'm really proud that um, uh, Laurel Schneider and I just finished our book, which yes. is out now. And um, that book is called um, Queer Soul and Queer Theology. And we'd be happy for you all to to read it we hope to make it available soon um in, in open access but um my my book project which is about freedom which is about the sort of processes of um like queer liberation um is probably i don't know a few chapters in you know a few chapters into what is let's say a six chapter book so mm-hmm. um the st- thoughts are still there. I still, you know, right away at it, but I wanted to finish the project with Laurel for sure. Yeah. And make sure that was done. And, and I think it also, uh, it allows me to, you know, run with you theologians a little bit. I, in the book with Jake and Eric, I was able to, uh, yeah. in the, um, in Tongues of Morals and Angels, you know, do a little biblical scholarship. Right. And here I was doing some theological work as well as ethics work. So I think when I return to that other project again, you'll hear a little bit more of my type of voice. Great, great. Well, Dr. Nick Young, I can't thank you enough. I feel like I'm giddy inside having been able to witness this conversation and and be a small part of it. Um, Would you kindly share with our listeners how they can keep up with you, how they might um, watch your musings on Twitter or how, what's the best way for folks to follow you? Um, thank you so much, first of all, for having me and just giving me an, another eye into you all's brilliance. Uh, I see and appreciate your work as a team, and it's really, really beautiful to witness. So first, thank you for that. Um, Robin, obviously, it's always a pleasure to be able to share thoughts and space with you. And yeah, Likewise. I mean, I can't say that I'm super good at a media presence, but you can certainly um, use the old version of email and email me at nikki.young at bucknell.edu. You can also find, I am on Twitter. I'm um, uh, Nikki Young. Nikki Young star. Star on Twitter. And also yeah. um, I'm Rising Lioness on Instagram. Excellent. 
Well, we will, um, we'll, we'll include those in the show notes, friends. So don't feel like you have to scramble for your pencil now. Um, once again, thank you so much for traveling on this journey with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Um, I am, uh, thrilled to be back from vacation, although it's bittersweet and I'm thrilled to still be able to see Robin's face while they are on sabbatical and, we have a lot of work to do. The world is still on fire. The, our, our, our work in it has not stopped. And if you do nothing other than get your hands dirty this week in some kind of activist theology, justice, goodness, then that will be enough. Um, friends, we will see you next week. And Dr. Robin, until then. Well... We're going to the end of the path of possibility to get free. We are. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. So early, they show me no mercy.